Okay, we are in uh, Matthew chapter 6. And last week we had covered a little bit about the first section in chapter 6, which is on giving. Let's read again in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Not that the practicing of righteousness is wrong in itself. And in fact, he goes through in this passage and he talks about three areas of the practicing of righteousness. One is giving, one is prayer, and the third one is fasting. Giving, prayer, and fasting. These are areas of righteousness that Jesus says that we are to be practicing, but not practicing to be noticed by men. Now you can contrast this with what's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, where he says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And I think that what he's speaking about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, are the fruits of the Spirit that come out of the life of the believer, that allow people to see aspects in you that make you different. It is not at all unusual that I will go somewhere to speak and just give some lecture on chemistry, nanotechnology, and people will come up afterward and they'll start to, to say you know, the, these key words that are Christian trying to, to see if indeed I'm a Christian. Well, what makes them do this is something that, not in particular that I said, but it's the fruit of the Spirit that comes out of the life of the believer. If you look in, in Galatians, Galatians chapter 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And it's a good portion to memorize. So if you're not in the habit of memorizing Scriptures and you'd like to get into the habit of memorizing Scripture, this is a great portion to start with. If you, if you will look in uh, Galatians chapter 5, we'll start with the deeds of the flesh in verse 19. Galatians 5.19 Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he gives this extensive list of the deeds of the flesh. And he says, not only that you will not inherit the kingdom of God, but it also, it destroys lives. And this is what I see in many young people, where they'll have, they'll have certain attitudes. Uh, there, there's some chairs up here in the front. There, there'll be certain attitudes or behavioral patterns that I know will destroy their lives. And this is why it concerns me so much as I'm talking with them and counseling with them. That the patterns that we take on, the patterns that we lead in our lives, if they are of the fruit of the flesh, actually destroy lives. They destroy lives. Like I told you that, that there's a, a, a six times higher suicide rate among teens that are sexually active. 
So that sort of practice does not make people happier. In fact, it's just the opposite. There are patterns here. Now, among this list, he actually has things like jealousy, like envying. And this is things that we can struggle with so much in our flesh. And again, I will tell you the thing that has helped me most in this area are the things that have have been talked about by, for example, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says that when your neighbor receives something, when your neighbor receives something, some award, be happy for them and rejoice with them as much as you would for yourself. And it turns the whole thing around and you're able to rejoice with the other person. And he talks about how these habits will keep us from having a good life and also keep us from the kingdom of God, these deeds of the flesh. Now in verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So you see that when we have these fruits of the flesh and show these, these fruits of the flesh to people, it is then that they are drawn. This is the light that shines before men in such a way that they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. As you show forth love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I think there is no way to do this regularly without being in the presence of Christ. To the extent that we will allow ourselves to be in the presence of Christ, we will pick up these habits. We will pick up these tendencies. You become like the one who you hang around with. If you hang around someone who's immoral, you become immoral. If you hang around people who have foul language, you begin to pick up foul language. If you hang around people who bear the fruits of the Spirit, you yourself will bear them. If you hang out with Jesus, you will bear the fruit of the Spirit. Let's turn back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. So in Matthew chapter 6, he says there are areas of righteousness that we should be practicing, but not with the intent of being noticed by men. What are those areas? The first one is giving, as we touched on last time. We are to give, as it says in verse 2, so when you give, so the implication is that we are giving. When we give, so when you give, to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving will be in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There is a reward for having a giving spirit. You will be blessed if you give. There are portions concerning this, in this portion, giving to the poor. There are other portions, giving generously. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. There's a whole portion on giving generously to God's laborers, to people who labor with the Word of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know of your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has been stirred up most has stirred up most of them. 
But I sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that I was saying to you, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. And then he goes on down and he talks about a gift that's to be given. Verse 6. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You see the pattern of sowing and reaping. If we sow sparingly, we reap sparingly. We reap according to that which we have sown. That goes for money, as he's talking about in this case. He was talking about a financial gift that was going to be given. It talks about attitude. It talks about as we bear a certain attitude towards somebody. Whatever we sow, that we shall also reap. Go, down, go back to Matthew chapter 6. So we'll go on to the second, the second area of righteousness. So the first one was having a giving attitude, especially toward the poor. Matthew chapter 6, verse, verse 5. When you pray... Again, the implication in Matthew 6, 5 is that we pray. He says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in the synagogues and on street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see that there is a reward for having an attitude of prayer. If you pray, there is great reward. Now remember, this section in Matthew was written to Jews talking about where they would come if they practiced the law. This is where it will get them into these areas of righteousness. But this exact same portion is talked about in Luke chapter 11. Jesus goes through the exact same thing, extending it now to the believer as well. And he teaches prayer in the same way. But there is reward in prayer. If we pray, we are rewarded. In verse 7, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. Look what he says. He says, don't use meaningless repetition. The vast majority of religions pray set prayers. For example, in Islam, you are greatly blessed for saying the same set of prayers every day at a specific time every day. In fact, it is in fact taught in the Quran that you are blessed more by saying the set prayers than trying to say a prayer that you would, you would bring from your own heart. There are set prayers. In the vast majority of denominations, there are set prayers that are prayed. Jesus says, don't do this. In Judaism, there are set prayers that are prayed. He says, don't be like this. And then he tells them, pray in this way. He says, doesn't say, do, use these words. He says, pray in this way. In verse 8, so do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Verse 9, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus doesn't say use these words. So what do we do? We turn around and we use these words. And we pray this prayer. 
This exa- these exact words. And Jesus said, pray in this way, in this manner. Don't use this meaningless repetition again and again. Pray from your heart. Now, how do I know that we're to pray primarily from spontaneous prayer from our heart? How do I know? Not just from this portion, but you record any prayer in the Scriptures. Any prayer in the Scriptures. Go find one for me. It was the prayer from a man or a woman's heart to God. They were not picking up set prayers. Jesus did not say, hey, hand me the prayer book so I could pray something to my Father. He didn't do that. He prayed to his Father. When Paul prayed prayers, he prayed spontaneously from his own heart. In those prayers, there was often the quotation of Old Testament passages. But it came spontaneously from the heart. In other words, there was so much Scripture known to them that the Scripture verses themselves came out within their prayers, making it a spontaneous prayer. Do you understand the difference? Now, that is not to say that you sin if you read from a prayer book. But you miss out tremendously if all you know how to do is pray set prayers. If you want to follow the pattern of the Scriptures, and that's what we're commanded to do. Paul said, you see the pattern of my walk? Walk likewise. Do what I do. He prayed spontaneously to God. Jesus prayed spontaneously to God. He wants such a relationship that we, we pray spontaneously to God. If all I do is ever just, you, you know, I, I want something for my wife and I just read to her a passage... I mean, there's not much of a relationship there. And what he's calling us to is a relationship. And then he says, pray in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In other words, start by glorifying God. Once you've done that, you say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is where we begin to pray for certain needs of the class, of the fellowship, of the pastor. Needs of people around us. Give us this day our daily bread. So then he talks about praying for our own needs. So we, 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 pray, we, we exalt God. We pray for others. We pray for our own needs. We pray for what's before us. Giving us this day our daily bread. And he brings it right down to the everyday mundane, our daily sustenance. This is important to God. That we learn to lift up the things that are before us. You've got... You know, 50 exams this week because all professors get together and they try to schedule all their exams together. This is a plan. And, and, and so you need to pray. And there are things that you pray about. Something concerns you. You pray. You lift that up to the Father. This is part of a relationship. The things that concern you, you talk about. To me, with my children, the most valuable time when I can begin to really talk with them is when they're going to bed and they're just lying down. And I'll lay in the bed next to them and and they'll begin to talk a little bit. They begin to open up. And this is a time when I I really enjoy it. And, and, And right now my kids are at such an age that the only one who still talks to me like this is Ben. He's 10. And so I lay on the bed next to him and he'll tell me all sorts of stuff before he goes to sleep. And then you can just... You can just you know, sense that he's beginning to go to sleep because all this nonsense starts coming out. And, and, uh, but they begin to open up. And to me, this means so much as a father because he's sharing his heart with me. And God is the same way when we come and we share the concerns of our own life with him. 
This is the relationship that He calls us to. This is not something that you read from a prayer book. This is something you commune with God. And then He says, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. You know, this thing that, oh, we have to ask God's forgiveness before we start to pray. That's not a scriptural pattern. The pattern is, and the same pattern is talked about in Luke chapter 11, when His disciples said to Him, Jesus, teach us to pray. He said, this is, okay, this is how you do it. And He talked about the same thing. The forgiveness came here at the end. After, after all this praying was done, then He says, oh, by the way, would you forgive me for all the mistakes that I've made? So there is no set pattern that you have to ask forgiveness before God is going to hear your prayer. After you've prayed for all these things, then he says, okay, and and ask God to forgive you too, because maybe in praying for others, it'll open us up a little bit more, because the hardest thing often to see is the sin in our own lives. And then he says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This praying... Be protected from all harm, from the attack of the enemy. Praying for God's protection and the spiritual battle that we're up against. Jesus gives us, He says, pray in this manner, in this way. Not these words, but this is the manner of what we can bring to the Father. This is something that we have in Christ that people do not have in other faiths. Where we can come and commune with God and just bear our hearts to God. Take advantage of it. And he says, your father who sees in secret will bless you for this. And then he says in verse 14, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. These are some of the most powerful words in scripture concerning the life of the believer. If we forgive others, we will be forgiven. If we don't forgive others, we will not be forgiven. You say, well, I am a believer. I say, well, good, then obey the Word of God. If you don't forgive others, you will not be forgiven. You say, well, that's kind of hard. Well, look what you just prayed up in verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. So God says, okay, fine. You asked that I forgive you like you forgive others? If you won't forgive others, I won't forgive you. You see how specific he is with our prayers? What we ask, he gives. He says, pray in this manner. Father, forgive them. In the same way that you have forgiven me, forgive them. And and may I forgive them then, in the same way that you've forgiven me. He brings us and He calls us to something greater here. As believers, we must forgive. Remember, the people who have hurt us most, very often young people will hold grudges against their parents for many different things. One day you will have a chance to be a parent. And what I have seen is that the things that we dislike the most in our parents, we ourselves become if we don't learn to walk in forgiveness. Jesus says, don't try to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye when you have a log in your own. Why is it? Because we see in other people the very tendencies that we dislike, we usually have ourselves. It's true. The things in our own physical appearance that we do not like, we are quickest to see that in other people. Did you know that? I don't know if that's ever happened to you. 
the tendencies that we dislike the most in other people are the tendencies that we're most likely to have within our, our, ourselves. And this is why He calls us to walk in an attitude of forgiveness. Young people very often become like their parents. The very tendencies they dislike most in their parents, they become. And 30 years later, after they've raised their own kids, they look back and they say, I did just like my parents did. The very same things my father said to me, I said to my child. If you don't learn to walk in forgiveness, it is through forgiveness that patterns that you dislike are broken. Young women who have been sexually abused, young men who have been sexually abused, find this passage so heart-wrenching. But I am not the one who calls you to forgive. It is Jesus who calls you to forgive. That does not mean that you need to relate to that person. It just means that you need to walk in an attitude of forgiveness. Father, forgive them as you have forgiven me. Father, forgive them. And proclaim upon them forgiveness from your own heart toward them. And very often you will find yourself in the beginning just speaking the words, but not even able to bring your heart around to that point. And say, Father, work it in my heart. And over a period of weeks and months and sometimes years from deep hurt, primarily in the area of sexual sin, you can work in your heart a forgiveness for that person. Not that you ever want to relate to them again, but that there's a pattern of forgiveness. And then you will be forgiven. And plus, that pattern then will not be extended on from your life. These are sobering words. In the same way that you forgive others, you yourself will be forgiven. And it would be a very hard thing to have to come before the Father in the end. And He says, not forgiven. Because you didn't forgive others. You say, well, that couldn't happen. Well, then how else do you rationalize this verse? This very verse says, but if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. It is a strong word. Believers must walk in forgiveness. We are a different people. We are called to be different. You say, well, they're not forgiving me. Well, too bad. You're the believer. You forgive them anyway. Because this is what you are called to. You are not responsible for your brother. You are not responsible for your sister. You are not responsible for the other person's actions. You are responsible for your own actions and your, for your response. You are responsible for that and nobody else. It is not your parents who will stand before God on your behalf. It is not your wife. It is not your husband. It is not your pastor. Each one of us will stand before God and give an account. And we must walk in forgiveness. Father, forgive them. And as Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So often that is the case. They did not realize the destruction that they were doing. And you say, well, how could they have not known that they were pounding some nails through Jesus' hands? They didn't know the depth of what they were doing. And even if they did, we must proclaim forgiveness upon them. Verse 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. 
For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who, is in, who sees in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He doesn't say, if you should decide to fast. Now, let me just say, I am not fasting today. Because I think if you're fasting, you shouldn't talk about fasting. Because you can be really hard on others. Alright? So it's not good to preach a message on fasting when you're fasting yourself. Because it's very easy to become judgmental when you see other people stuffing their faces with Hershey's kisses. And you haven't had anything for three days. So I'm not fasting. So... Let me also say that I find fasting very difficult to do. It is not an easy thing to do. And for days before I will start a fast, I am just dreading when that day will begin. Because for me, it is very difficult. For those of you who don't have much trouble fasting, well, God bless you. I have a lot of trouble. But I will do it probably four to six times a year for several days, and at least, at least twice a year for at least five days. So, you know, that's a good chunk of time. And all I'll have during that period is water. And most of you will never know it. Um, you know, because I don't stand up and say, oh, by the way, I'm fasting. Feel bad for me. We are to wash our face and just continue on with our lives. We're not to, you know, go around groaning all day and say we're fasting, we're fasting. There is something that happens in our fasting. Well, are we supposed to really fast in the, in the New Testament? Jesus said, he was, they, they approached Jesus, they said, the disciples of John's fast, the Pharisees fast. How come your disciples don't fast? He says, when I go away, they will start fasting. Right now the bridegroom is here. But when I go away, they will indeed start fasting. And then we have several instances of this. So, for example, in Acts chapter 13. And remember, you want to follow the pattern of the New Testament church? Look in the book of Acts, and you will see the pattern of the New Testament church. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now they were at Antioch in the church that was there. Prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who, were called, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean. Who, was, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them on their way. There was a pattern in the New Testament church that they would fast and pray. And so these things were going on. Look in Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So, fasting with praying is indeed scriptural. What does fasting do? It draws us away from ourselves. It is painful. It hurts. gives headaches. But it draws us away from ourselves and focuses us, focuses us in more upon the Lord. 
And usually it's not until you hit about the third day that you get over these extreme pains of fasting that you get into a time where you can really start drawing close to God. And then very often after a fast, you feel as if you've accomplished so much in the prayer that came through fasting. And there's a zeal that comes after an extended period of fasting. I am not into heaping difficulties on people. However, this is something that's mapped out in the Scriptures that we are to be doing. And, and now that we're talking about fasting, Shireen and Laura are eating chocolate-covered strawberries that, that they were just given by Roy. How's, how's that for uh, some topical uh, study here? When you fast, it draws you away from yourself. And there is a reward in this. I put this upon you because it's been put upon you in the Scriptures. I don't put things upon you, hopefully, that aren't in the Scriptures. But what's in the Scripture is there for our edification. It will cause you to grow. This is an act of righteousness. We're not to practice this before men in order to be seen by men and be glorified by men, but we're to practice this before God. Just as we are giving and praying, we are to learn how to fast. If you've never fasted before, why don't you start with a day? Skip three meals, and you will see it'll be quite difficult. And you'll say, I don't get any praying done. I mean, this is terrible. The last thing I do when I'm fasting is praying, because all I can do is think about food. You are just beginning to work yourself up into it. I mean, as you're learning the alphabet, you can get frustrated because you don't yet know how to, to read Shakespeare but you're just working your way up into it. And then over a period of time, you will try it again. Try it for a day and a half, two days. And instead of eating, get with your Bible, read a passage, fall on your knees and begin to pray. And you will see it will begin to work something in your life. It is a pattern that God says is good for people. He realizes things can draw us astray. Now let's move on. Verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You know, I have met, now living in Houston for seven years, I've met many very wealthy people. And I like them a lot. I I mean, I have good relationships with them. But I find that they long, they would long to have the relationship with family and with God that I have. The wealth does not do it for them. There is something so much richer than monetary wealth. So much greater. And it is the things of God. He says, don't store up for yourselves these things on earth. Look in Luke chapter 16. You know, this was absolutely foreign, foreign 
to these first century Jews because the Pharisees had actually set up a system where they became extremely wealthy. The religious leaders had set up this system where they had become extremely wealthy. Jesus talked about the same, port, the same sort of thing in, in Luke chapter 16. Look for verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Look what he says. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot. Either you can serve God or you can serve wealth. If your intention is to become wealthy, you cannot serve God. If God shall bless you with, with wealth, that's fine. But if your intention is to get wealth, you cannot serve God. How do I know? Because Jesus said it. You cannot serve God and wealth. Verse 14. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at Him. And He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. That which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Wealth does not turn God on. Wealth does not impress God. There is nothing inherently wrong within wealth. But it doesn't impress God at all. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul's instructions to Timothy concerning leaders in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 1, 1 Timothy 3, 1, it is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, and by that it means pastor of a church, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the, hus- the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, Free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. That is what he talks about, being free from the love of money. Let's read on. But if he does not know how to manage... uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So then, and then it goes on for these other requirements. But look what it says. He says he must be free from the love of money. And I'm not going to pick on any specific person. I'm going to look at myself. If I am devoted to money and I want wealth, I will miss God. That is what the Scriptures say. Look in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 5, the latter part of verse 5, it says, Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness, so 1 Timothy 6.6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when when accompanied with contentment. So in other words, godliness can bring great gain when accompanied by contentment. 
Verse 10 of of 1 Timothy chapter 6. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It is not money in itself. It is the love of money which is the root of all sorts of evil. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And people longing for it, many, many people longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. I was talking to one young believer one day, just not too long ago, and I said, what do you want to do? He says, oh, well, you know, I think I want to go into real estate and make a bunch of money so that way I can do the things that, you know, free me up to do some other things that I really want to do. And I'm thinking, you got the whole thing backwards. You have the whole thing backwards. You want to just go out and make a ton of money? In that period of trying to make a ton of money, you will, you will lose God. You will miss out on Him. That is not to be your intent as a believer. Well, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to keep quiet? When he told me what he... So I told him the truth. Many people have pierced themselves with many pains when their intent was to make a bunch of money. If that is your intent, you will miss God. You will absolutely miss God. Because the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And during that period, when you say, well, for the next ten years I'm going to make a fortune and then I'm going to give a lot to God. Baloney. That's a bunch of nonsense. That never works. You set your heart in serving God in whatever career He has for you. And if in that career where you have set aside to serve Him, He should bless you with a lot of money, that's great. And then there is continued instruction for you. He talks about this. He says in... in, uh, Verse 17 of the same chapter. Verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. When you find wealthy people that live like this, it is such a beautiful thing. Absolutely beautiful. We had, uh, we had a gentleman in, in, who used to help out with this class several years ago. Uh, um, and, and he's now moved, moved out of Houston. But he was an extremely wealthy man. He had several kids and extremely wealthy. And you would never know it. And the students never realized it because he just had a kind of a normal-sized house and he lived, drove a normal sort of car. But extremely wealthy. And this guy was always giving to the work of the Lord. And it was wonderful to see it. And any time I needed something, you know, to you know, pull together something, I could just go to him. I'd say, hey, you know, I want to pull this together. Boom. He'd say, let me, let me fund it. Instantly, he was giving. This is a beautiful thing. Because he was not setting his life on the uncertainty of riches, which can be here today and gone tomorrow. But he was building a greater foundation for himself. If there is the love of money, it is the root of all sorts of evil. Many people trying to negotiate things in their job and demanding more and more have lost their jobs and ended up with much less. Money is the root of all sorts of evil. Godliness is a means of great gain when coupled, it says here, with contentment. Learning to be content. There are so many people who have very little that have these beautiful lives, beautiful families and beautiful children. 
And then there are others that have great wealth and great torment with it. And Jesus is calling us. And He says, you cannot serve God and wealth. You must choose who you're going to serve. And Jesus was very clear with the Pharisees. You cannot serve both. And He calls us to something greater than that. And we have in our society many opportunities to get great wealth. And it has caused many young people who otherwise would have learned how to serve God to get drawn astray. And what I ask you to do is you serve God with a whole heart. And if He then should bless you with money, learn to, be as, learn to do as it says here. Let them be rich toward God. You are to be rich toward God, supplying the needs of others and being gracious with it. And when you find rich people who are like that, they can be a tremendous blessing. But if you set out your life to be in that place, you will miss it. You will absolutely miss it. You set out your life to serve God and you will be blessed. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the Word of God, which calls us to be different than the world. Father, thank You that You call us to pray. What the world considers nonsense and a waste of time, You say there is great reward in it, and that You will reward us when we pray. You call us to give to the poor, and You said that we will receive a reward in that. And Father, You call us into fasting, something that just absolutely wars against our flesh. Nevertheless, You call us to do battle against the desires of the flesh. Father, thank You that You call us beyond ourselves into something greater. And Lord, thank You for this warning concerning money, that the love of money is at the root of all sorts of evil. Father, I pray for these young people that whatever the path you have for them in life, you will draw them into it. That you would draw them into this path that you have for them. And Lord, that they would pray and seek you in their careers. And if you should so bless them with money, that they would learn to be rich toward God and not fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. And Father, that they would not even live as if they were rich, but they would be li- live as if they had lives that are giving. And Father, I pray that You'd give them hearts to seek You because they cannot serve God and wealth. And Father, I pray that they would choose God and learn to have good lives. Father, have mercy on these young people. And Father, I pray that You would teach them to walk in forgiveness. Father, for the people who have hurt and so hurt them in the past and the people who are going to hurt them in their lives, that they would still learn to walk in forgiveness. Father, that they would not hold grudges against people, against even their parents, that they would release those and commit those to You. Father, I pray for the young women here who have been sexually abused, that by Your grace, You would cause them to walk in the freeness of forgiveness. By Your grace. Father, for the young men who have been abused sexually, Father, I pray that You would cause them also to walk in freeness of forgiveness. Father, may these young people set out a different pattern in this world. And may Your grace abound. Father, pour out the grace of God on them, I pray, and give them lives that are godly. And even as the world is becoming so uncertain as to what may come before them, 
even in just a few years, Father, may they set their hearts totally on serving You and in that be greatly blessed. I commit them to You in Jesus' name. Amen.